Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. On this episode, former fellow and veteran TV news producer Richard Kaplan returned to the Shorenstein Center to discuss the 2016 election, including the media's role as debate moderators and the blurring of the lines between entertainment and serious journalism. Kaplan also discussed Brian Williams' re-entry into the news, presidential candidate's appearances on Saturday Night Live, and his involvement as a consultant to HBO's The Newsroom. So welcome, everybody. I'm uh, Tom Patterson. I'm the acting director of the of the Shorenstein Center. Um, anyway, we're delighted to have Rick Kaplan here, uh, to, to have Rick back. Uh, you know, we've had, I think, more than 300 uh, visiting fellows and uh, instructors over the years, um, and each of them have made a significant contribution to the life of the Shorenstein Center. Uh, Rick's was singular, however. Um, no one who was in those roles uh, got as close to the students as Rick did, uh, would take them down to New York, for show them how a newsroom operates, and uh, ended up uh, mentoring several and helping them into uh, jobs in journalism. So uh, that's your history here. But then there's a much deeper history to, to Rick Kaplan. Um, was president of MSNBC, uh, president of CNN, senior vice president of ABC. Uh, one of his last uh, kind of network gigs was the executive producer for the CBS Evening News with Katie Couric, uh, <coughs> and now has uh, his own firm, uh, Kaplan Media Partners, right? And uh, one of the clients uh, is has been uh, Aaron Sorkin uh, and the newsroom. Uh, Rick, welcome back. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here. The um, I had a, the most wonderful time here. The uh, Actually, the day I took the students down to New York, it was just going to be, you know, see the network, sit and talk to Mike Wallace, sit and talk to Jan- Diane Sawyer and, you know, the sea stars and all this and keep them interested. And um, we were at Good Morning America about 15 minutes before the end of the show, and at Good Morning America, they all start leaving. You know, the staff just piles out. So the last 15 minutes were really just skeleton crew and the anchors, and a plane crashes in Queens. And they're panicked. And, I'm, you know, I'm sitting here with 22 Harvard students, right? And so the producer comes up and says, Rick, can you help us? I said, well, I got 22 young journalists and they can, I'm sure they can help you. He said, well, we can put them on computers. You think they know how to work on computers? <laughs> I said, I think they know how to build computers. <laughs> Just you know, let them to it. They ended up booking, I showed them what a reverse phone book was, you know, where you look up the phone, you look up the address and it tells you the phone number as opposed to the names and all the rest. And we knew where the plane went down. So I said, just call these numbers and see if anybody can look out their window and tell you what's going on. They booked seven interviews and saved the day. I mean, it was the most exciting day for them and for me. I was watching them, and they were on cruise control. They were being great students that the the school produces. So it was really fun. And I had a study group, a historic study group, I, I think. We had 27 students. And uh, none of them were going into journalism. And at the end of it, 10 did. Uh, five, four are uh, correspondents. Two of them are overseas. They're doing incredible work. Um, you know, and then uh, the ones who didn't become journalists, one of them is running the embassy in Kabul. I mean, little things like that. So uh, this has been a wonderful place for me. But that's not why you had me here. Um, so I thought what I would do <clears throat> is just talk a little bit about some headlines in journalism right now and then work my way to Aaron Sorkin and and I assume you probably want to hear a story or two from the set of Newsroom. Um, So I'm going to start with what I think just was a current headline for me, which was the the CNBC debate with the Republicans, which I thought was one of the most embarrassing evenings for network news ever. I just thought the way they conducted themselves, the hosts, 
I'm not talking about the candidates. I thought the way the network conducted itself, I thought the way they uh, started the debate with what was, to me, an extraordinarily rude question to Donald Trump. You know, you may not consider him whatever. You may not consider him your favorite candidate, or maybe you don't support him, but you've invited him to a debate. He is the leading candidate, or he was at that moment, and he doesn't deserve to be treated with disrespect, and I thought he was treated with disrespect, and I thought that was wrong, and it set a terrible tone, and I thought that there, it, it was the most embarrassing performance by a network in public to me, short of a few scandals here and there that have been at the networks ever, and it was very hard to watch as someone who loves networks and loves NBC. Um, I just don't know what they had on their mind. You know, they uh, they would be in a good conversation about the national debt or the debt ceiling or whatever, and then somebody would ask them a question about fantasy football. Or, I mean, things that, do you really care about these things? I don't think people are tuning into debates for those kinds of things. So it was one of those, they wanted it to be a food fight. They wanted to have an entertainment show. They wanted a show where candidates would do terrible things to each other, I think. And... I don't think that should be your prime objective when you're privileged to host. I've done 10 debates in my time. And we would sit very carefully with the anchors and the producers, and we would map out what we wanted to accomplish and, and where we wanted to go. And we had research help in the control room. So a couple times in the CNBC debate when one of the anchors said, well, I don't know where I read that exactly or I read it somewhere or, well, we have somebody who can, we can remind them that was in Donald Trump's website that he said that. You know, the, So they had, there were times when they were made to look completely <coughs> foolish because candidates had their way with them. And then some of the, there are a couple of candidates who would spout numbers, facts. One of them said, I think it was 95% of all the people laid off last year were women. Well, I don't know what the real number is, but I'll guarantee you that isn't the real number. And it just, and she got a, and Carly Fiorino got a pass. And she tends to get a pass on almost anything she says. And she's full of facts and figures that don't add up. And you really need to have fact checkers in control rooms, and they weren't set up, they apparently were not set up to do it. So I'm, I think that set network news back. We have enough trouble with the public to start with. You know, I've worked in a lot of newsrooms, and you may find this hard to believe, and you might raise an eyebrow, but some of you I know won't. We don't sit around in network newsrooms thinking how to get somebody. And we don't sit around in newsrooms saying, you know, we're Democrats or we're liberals, and we've got to make sure that this agenda gets you know, out there, and we've got to, and people don't believe that. And we give them, I think, mainstream media, which Fox is part of. And, and by the way, I think, and I think Tom and I were talking earlier, I think he may agree, but I think Fox has done the best job of anybody in these debates. And I'm, I'll bet you their debate tonight is, is really terrific. Because, you know, Roger Ailes is a very, very, very smart guy. And he knows, he knows news, and he knows what should be. And I understand that there are people who might consider him the devil, but he is a brilliant journalist, a brilliant man, and I think they'll do their debate. My prediction would be that their debate will be first class and what it should be. Um, but in any event, I thought they set our relationship with the public back a decade after listening to that, because after listening to that and watching them, and then they kept putting other, they, uh, three questioners wasn't enough, then four wasn't enough, then five different ones, and six or so, I don't know how many they ended up with, it was crazy, it was like watching the Spice Girls. And, um, you know, they, I just don't know what they were thinking. So, but it leaves me with, um, you know, we all play the game of, so who do you think will be on the ticket? And, before one of you asked me, should you ask me? I really think that Jeb Bush is not done um, because he's got a ton of money. 
and he can live through everything. Now, if he does really horribly on this debate tonight, then maybe he is done. But if he doesn't, then he's on his way back. There's, I don't see Carson and Trump being on the ticket in November, call me crazy. And that actually frees up 45% of the Republican vote. And they got to go somewhere. So where are you going to go? Well, there's Rubio, but I think he's young, and I don't think we want to have yet another inexperienced person become president. I think the country's a little tired of that. So maybe it's not quite Rubio's time. Maybe he's a vice president. Maybe he's a vice president on a Kasich Rubio ticket. Kasich is probably the most successful governor in the United States. Um, He's got his own issues. And once, and and his own problems, and and maybe maybe he doesn't reach the top. But I think Jeb's got a really good chance to get to the top. There are people who tell me that Mitt Romney's going to jump back in to save the party, but he doesn't save the party, and and uh, I don't think they need him in the party to save it. Um, so I don't think I think of the existing candidates, you got so you got Rubio, Kasich, and and Bush, and I think Bush still has the best chance unless he really bombs, and he's capable of taking himself out of the game. So there's that. So it brings me to Newsroom, which was a joy. I joined them in the second season. Uh, They had done a first season, and Aaron called me and asked me if I could come on and be a creative consultant, and that involves some writing as well. Then ultimately, Aaron writes every single line and every single word. You should know that. But we give him, you know, stuff. We give him ammunition and stuff. And the thing that was funny was, um, so Aaron said, well, what are your first observations about our, you know, the first season was just about halfway done, I think three quarters of the way done. And I said, well, you know, because he says, I want a real newsroom. I want a real show. And I want to do a network news like it ought to be done. That's, the, that's what the example of newsroom should be. That Will is an anchor and Emily Mortimer came on and she, Mac, you know, she's producing a show like, like it should be. Like when we would sit and talk about, well, if you had the network and you were going to do the perfect show, what would you do? He says, that's what I want. I said, well, first, um, you have a lot of sex in the show, and you have sex in the newsroom. And I'm not going to tell you there's not sexual tension in a, ne- in a network newsroom or even sex in a newsroom, but it's not in the newsroom. And you have it in the newsroom, and, you know, that really doesn't play not anywhere, no matter how crazy the newsroom is. It, you just don't do it there. He said, Rick... It's romantic comedy. I said, well, you're telling me you want realism. And he's, but I, I'd love a nickel for every time he told me, this is a romantic comedy, you know, but a, about a real newsroom. And we had more fun, and I will tell you that we had experts. Um, one of my fellow contributors is a member of the SEALs, a member of SEAL Team 6, in fact. And he would... We would sit and we would be at a meeting kind of like this, fewer people, and we would go through ops. He would go through an op. I I might venture a scenario and he would go through an op and he would go through it with all the letters, you know. uh, I don't pretend to remember all the letters, but, you know, the RPG and the this, 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 and, and he brought extraordinary realism to it because... I guess I'm not allowed to tell you that he he was on some very 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 high profile raids, actions, <coughs> maneuvers, and we're not allowed to talk about that. But so he talked from experience, and um, he would put all the right acronyms and all the right military plans together, which gave the show real, you know, realism. The, um, in the third season, I thought, we started to push the envelope a little further than it should have been, it should be pushed. 
at one point we had Will virtually committing treason, and I said, you know, networks don't let their anchors commit treason. We go far. We go to the line. But when the next step is treasonous, the, the network lawyers will say, I don't think so. You know, that, that's what you don't want to do. That's when Will was going to take... The, uh, for those of you who have not watched Newsroom, this is, I know, Chinese to you, but for those of you who did watch Newsroom, you remember the scenario where their guy was leaking documents like Snowden, and he leaked it to one of the members of the newsroom staff. And Will said, do you, and the guy, he said, the guy's a little stuck now. He doesn't know how to get more. He has more documents, and he doesn't know how to get them. And Will said, I can sit down and show him how to get more documents. And that's when I drew the line. I said, you can't do that. Will, the anchor man is not going to commit treason, because if the American public ever learns that one of their anchors commits treason or lies, <laughs> it's fatal for that anchor with the public from that moment on. So, so networks really don't do that. I'm going to stop there because <clears throat> I'm only going to get in trouble. Okay. <laughs> okay. Go further. So normally I ask the first question, but I, I, it's going to be a little off topic, so I'm going to hold it till the end. So uh, floor is open. Uh, students get priority in this early going. So. Um, but you need to act quickly because we don't leave the floor empty. Uh, My God. Floor is open, so yeah, let's go. Uh, I totally agree with you about the behavior of the moderators in the <coughs> CNBC debate. Um, that said, however, um, I'm not so sure Donald Trump does deserve respect because his entire campaign is based on being disrespectful to the other candidates. So why was that question uh, about being a cartoon character, why was that uh, inappropriate? Well, I think that's what the CNBC anchor would say to me, too, if he was sitting here. And what I would say to you is this. You have invited, you invited him to be there. <clears throat> Whether you agree or not, I mean, I did a debate with Ross Perot. So I know about dealing with strange candidates. And I will just tell you, if you invite someone to be on your debate panel, and that person is validated with, at that point, 26% of the Republican vote, you owe that person respect. There is a way to state that question without calling him a cartoon character, isn't there? There is a way to say, you know, there are people who criticize your campaign and the seriousness of it, and they question how rude you are at times, and you really think that's appropriate behavior for a, a, a traditional candidate. You know, you could ask it. There are ways to ask it without being in the street. So that's my point with that. So did I win you over? Uh, sort of. <laughs> sort of. I, I well, that's good. That's <laughs> progress. I, I, mean, I think the moderator is justified in framing the question in the terms that Trump himself would frame it. It's a little bit of he's getting what But do you really want to sink, now this is an editorial opinion, do you really want to sink to his level and take your whole debate, you've got a dozen candidates up there, and you really want to take the whole, the level of rhetoric and discourse, do you really want to set the tone and take the whole debate down into the Trump's level? Or do you want to elevate the discussion and you're going to ask it in a certain way because you're a responsible journalist and there are candidates up there who are quite serious about what they're doing and don't you want to keep the, the rhetoric at a level of respect? That's, that's my only point about using cartoon language to, to do that. So did I win you over now? Um, I, I think I'll... I mean, I totally agree with you about sinking. Well, then I had to have won you over. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of being a devil's advocate, so I don't know if you win the devil over. Okay. <laughs> please. Here's, yeah, please. Yeah. Um, so there has been a lot of discussion. Could you, uh, also, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I should have mentioned, uh, when you ask a question, if you could identify yourself, that would be This helpful. is so we can come back and figure out where you live and <laughs> where you have to get in. I'm Stephanie Martin. My address is, oh, no, I'm, no. Uh, I'm across the, uh, the river at the business school. 
there's been a lot of discussion about how news uh, devolves into entertainment, as we talked about with the debate. Are there examples of organizations or particular examples of coverage that you think have raised the bar uh, in terms of journalistic reporting? Raised the bar? Absolutely. I think the CBS Morning News, if you have not watched it, yeah. The CBS Morning News, especially the first 22 minutes, is perhaps the best news program in television. Right up there with 60 Minutes. Mm -hmm. You know, Charlie, Rose, and Nora, and, and Gail, they do a spectacular job. That, and, and the producer is a terrific producer, and the CBS Morning News is very special. And they do great journalism, and they respect the news, and they don't spend a whole lot of time teaching you how to carve pumpkins and slice turkeys and you know they don't spend a lot of time on a Kardashian butt or anything else I mean they're really terrific and I love spending the morning with them um, I think that the Today Show is starting to come back to its roots which was more serious journalism and I'm, and I'm very happy about that and uh, they're, they're, they're starting to succeed I left someone out they're starting to see it at their, at, at their loss. And um, I think the CBS Evening News and the NBC Nightly News are two examples of shows that, um, especially in CBS's case, that cover the news uh, seriously and professionally and uh, don't take personal... You know, they're written well. I, I care about the way a show is written. I care about the language. Um, I remember watching the uh, John Adams miniseries, which was just, you know, taken right out of the book and done brilliantly. And I remember listening to the quality of speech at that time. When you listen to John Adams and you listen to him talk to Thomas Jefferson, I mean, they're two pretty bright guys to begin with, but their language, their use of language is so wonderful. And on the evening news, as Jeff, uh, David will tell you, we spend a lot of time worrying about exactly what words, adjectives, adverbs, all the rest, the construction of a sentence. We didn't let people have dangling participles and hanging chads and all the rest of that. And, and it's important. And I think that CBS um, and NBC pay a lot of attention to that. And I'm proud of them for that. And 60 Minutes is still an amazing, amazing program. Don't you think? So there, there, those that's happy. And this, and the Sunday talk shows are predictable but responsible. But, but. Um, Please. Yes, Doug Hyde. I'm a fellow at the Harvard IOP. We worked on the Drake University debate in 2011. Oh, there you go. And that was, and and that was considered, at by the end of this, the uh, the session, by the end of this, the, the sequences. That was the best debate of the entire season. That was the mo and that was a fun debate to do. Yeah. Um, you alluded earlier to um, reporters or journalists not necessarily being honest. So I wanted to ask about Brian Williams and what your thoughts on how NBC handled that, but also as MSNBC is transitioning now to a more uh, at least daytime news focus, uh, how you see that going so far or moving forward? Well, I think it's. I, I left MSNBC, and, and in part it was differences over I didn't want to do a partisan network, and so I was not fitting in because they were, at that point, becoming a Democratic network, you know, the answer, the Democratic answer to Fox, and they thought that would be a great way to go. Um, so I'm glad they're going back to their journalism roots, and, and Andy Lack is to be credited for that, you know, go back to news and, and, and do that. Um, in terms of Brian Williams, I think Brian Williams has paid a horrifying price for what he did. And I'm not telling you he didn't deserve it or, or whatever. I'm just saying I think that we have beaten him up enough. I think that, that he's been beaten up enough on the blogs and in the, the uh, and in tweets and, you know, and just in the media in general. And it's time to, you know, let him recover his life and whatever becomes of it becomes of it. And then if then it'll be up to the American public as they watch him in a role uh, that he's got in MSNBC for breaking news. And, and if they accept him, that says something about our ability to forgive and forget. 
And if they don't accept them, it says something about the level of what he did. I think that um, I think that NBC uh, makes a mistake with Brian right now in that I don't. If you want somebody to catch on, you want somebody to be established, you know, get his mojo back, and then you have to give him a show because people have to have a time to see him and make that judgment. And if you just say, well, he's going to come on when there's breaking news, well, there's not always breaking news. You know, Rune Arlich once gave me the job of starting a show called Primetime Live, as Sam Donaldson would have said. And what we learned is that on Thursday night at 10 o'clock, there's very little that goes on live in the country. So Primetime Live <laughs> became Primetime Taped, but run live, you know. I mean, it was, and, and we just learned great lessons about that. But what you had to, but if you're just sitting there and saying, Brian's going to come on when there's a big story. Well, there aren't big stories all the time. Yes, the Pope does come here. And that's four days, you know. And, and there's a plane crash, and that should only be, you know, part of a day and part of another day and then reports here and there and you do have news anchors to handle it so it's not like breaking news this just in you know here's a preliminary report from a crash investigator so you start to make up reasons to put Brian Williams on the air and you start to lower the bar and you don't do anybody any favors because they don't know when to catch him anyways now he did I saw him do some of the Pope coverage and he did it brilliantly and if he had a show then he would have a chance to earn his way back into our living rooms. If you don't give him a show, I think he's really put at a disadvantage, a huge disadvantage. Does that answer you? I'm Peter Sage. I'm from Oregon, and I'm a political tourist and an alum of the college. From a great state, though. It is, and I I came here to kind of see what people do in New Hampshire, and and oddly enough, uh, there are no public events in New Hampshire, so I'm here. Uh, Because I've seen Chris Christie three times, I I became aware of something that I'm curious whether the news people have a responsibility for revealing it. The the pregnant pauses, the extraordinarily adept way he gives the presentation that that, that went viral regarding addiction in his parent, it's a set piece. Even all 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 of the hesitations and all... Everyone who's in the media who's, who's watched this now, I watched it three times, it became obvious. They must have watched it 50 times. Is there a responsibility of the press to kind of reveal the simple, I think, reality that what we're watching is performances rather than people? Or is, is, is I think people? I think people actually kind of know that. And as we remember from our time when we were, I was one of the boys on the bus in, in yeah. years past, before your time. The uh, maybe, the um, and and you know you would sit there and they had their pat speech, and the thing that was always funny watching the press corps is they're they're all filming you know the candidate stump speech, and they're everybody nobody's paying attention you know it's like oh, there it goes you know as I walked through the snows in New Hampshire I actually was a speechwriter for Gene McCarthy, who ran in 1968 not Joe McCarthy, <laughs> but Gene McCarthy, and um, but. You know, these candidates do their stump speeches. And then the thing that's interesting to watch is when they add something or subtract something. I mean, you start to become adept. You memorize their stump speech. And you become adept at memorizing it. And then all of a sudden, they change something. And you watch the press corps. And they jump up and they jump to the cameras. And it's, like, startling to the audience. And the candidates all think they know, you know, they, you know, they got me. You know, they know I'm doing something different here. You don't pick on a candidate. You don't dissect a candidate until they're worth dissecting, right? We don't, dis- we don't dissect, I would say to you, that I would not tell you to dissect a frog before it's time. And Chris Christie is not a frontline candidate. And there'll be a time when maybe he will be. I don't think that'll happen. I'm one of those people who was caught in the four-hour traffic jam on the George Washington Bridge, which I will never forgive him for, as long as I live. 
But until he becomes a frontline candidate, when he becomes a frontline candidate, if he has those moments, Jeb Bush, for instance, when he decided to trap Marco Rubio on so-called trap Marco Rubio on the on the uh, voting, uh, his absence and, and not voting, everybody said, sat there and went, oh my God, this is so rehearsed by Jeb, right? And it was more than rehearsed. Rubio knew he was going to do right. this and trapped him into it. And so those kinds of rehearsed moments, but you generally backfire. But you don't, as a journalist, why pick on the guy? He's not worth it. He doesn't get daily coverage to begin with. He doesn't even get daily coverage in print where, you know, they could give him a paragraph, right? So he rarely gets picked up. You don't pick up these candidates. You know, take your, you have to spend your time doing the front line. You just have to do it, especially when there's 16 of them. I'm sorry. Please. Hi. Uh, my Hi. Name is Christy, and I'm actually a student. Of You're Chris Christie? <laughs> <laughs> Not so much. Um, I'm a student of Boston University College of Communication. Yes. And I have a pretty general question. So, what do you think are the core ethnicities or moral guidelines that, whether journalists, um, public relations managers, conductors, or the people who work for media should follow or should um, hold up? I'm missing it. What? The, 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 um, the moral guidelines the core See, I, I used to, when, I, I, I like the fact that at Harvard we, we didn't offer a journalism major. And I like, and, and I like uh, schools that only offer journalism as a graduate course. I'm getting to your answer. Um, because journalism is... Uh, the things that you learn in undergrad journalism school are things that are in many ways best taught when you're working in the business. I can teach you how to shoot and I can teach you how to edit and I can teach you all kinds of things, but I can't teach you what the gross national product is. I don't have time. And I can't teach you what the relationship between unemployment and the debt is. You know, those are the kinds of things you have to learn um, in school, uh, you know, you have to learn something. You have to learn how to write. You have to learn English. You have to learn, um, which which leaves me with, but what about the core values, as a professor said to me at Illinois, where they have an undergraduate, a vibrant uh, undergraduate journalism program? I said, well, what are you teaching them? And he went through the litany. I said, so basically what you're teaching them, and these are the core values of journalism, to be honest, to be fair, to be questioning, to be respectful, right? Those kinds of qualities, it's kind of like, it, it goes without saying, why do you have to take a bunch of courses for it? Which is why I'm not for what undergrad schools do. I love what grad schools do. But basically, to be a good citizen, a good human being, to know what um, your place is, to know that you're, you know, the, Journalists, when they cover the president, we've, we've known some journalists who cover the president and think they are the president or think they are the vice president or that they are powerful because of, you know, what they can do. But they really can't do anything. They're supposed to be just there covering what the president does. Um, so it's kind of knowing your place and it's, it's, um, it's uh, it comes down to truth and honesty and Dignity and and civility. Civility is very important. Very important to be. You know, the, the, my biggest problem with what goes on in Congress now. I worked in the Senate in 1968 for about five months, um, in you know around the conventions and when I was still with the senator, and it was an extraordinary experience. And if a member if a Democratic member of the, part of, of the Congress went after a Republican in a disrespectful way, his Democratic leader punished him. Same for the Republicans. Everett Dirksen would come down like a ton of bricks on anybody who was disrespectful. Civility was very important. And the level of discourse, the debate that went on in the Congress was awe-inspiring.
awe-inspiring because they understood, unlike what Mitch McConnell said when he said, my basic job is to make sure Barack Obama doesn't get reelected. I don't think so. I think your basic job is to see what you can do to help the country. You know, and so he probably misspoke himself, but that he would even think of saying that is kind of hurtful. The, the level of discourse, the civility that is lacking in Washington, and the civility that is lacking among some journalists when they report about these events and, and deal with these people, um, that has to be worked on. So that's all part of the core values, to be a you know, good human being. Public relations ways. So well, <clears throat> you know, I've been worked by uh, public relations people and press people and press attaches and all. And you just, you know, everybody's got an angle, and you're, you know, it's now there is so much money thrown at those people that. Um, it's, it's all kind of corrupt and um, very difficult, I think, for people to, to do the right thing at times. I mean, that's a much long, I mean, we could spend a lot of time talking about this, but please, that's yeah. really. Hi, um, I'm from Turkey. Um, I was born here, actually. Uh, but I have, cause I have really, um, I totally agree with some points with you. And for, uh, back in my home, we also have CNN and others. We have the accessibility. Uh, uh, and um, like we also have CNN too for the Turkish. Yeah, there is a the CNN Turkish. network. Yeah. CNN is a very interesting company. Um, when I was there, we uh, began CNN Turk, which is CNN for just Turkey and, the, and that region, the Ottoman region. And um, uh, it's very... It's very, it's very uh, skewed towards stories, uh, and it's a terrific service, actually, especially for mm -hmm. people who live in Turkey. Also, uh, we also have Bloomberg HD for Turkish uh, media uh, coverage, and uh, along with that, I have the uh, possibility to uh, watch Charlie Rose's program. When I came once, uh, I had the possibility uh, to listen to things uh, from uh, as a as from uh, I mean uh, from music department from music and uh, from, um, from fashion then was Stanback and also from politics uh, Valérie Distin from France the former prime uh, former president so um, I mean they uh, they build up to my knowledge I because I studied international relations at College University back in Turkey. And uh, like I have a question after all this, okay. uh, how can um, entertainment and politics can uh, can be uh, connected? Because nowadays people like too much entertainment, too much fun, but not too many people are interested in politics or just like worldly events. Well, politicians at. use entertainment because what you have is you have all these media handlers and they make their politicians out to be just so. It's most pronounced in Hillary Clinton, who is a fabulous, uh, I'm just telling I, my opinion, she's a fabulous person. But her campaign makes her out to be, you know, con controlled Hillary and, and her responses are controlled and people start to doubt whether she's a real person and whether she's a, uh, not a fraud or she's not, you know, trying to put one over on you or they question her sincerity and all of this. And so what she does and what all politicians do, some better than others, uh, is they use entertainment because it tends to soften them and it tends to show you another side of them. I thought when Hillary went on Saturday Night Live and she was the bartender, it was brilliant. And, and that really is Hillary. I mean, she's... She can laugh at herself and she can laugh at other things, but when she's Hillary Clinton, the candidate, she laughs on cue. So it's really tough, and, and they use entertainment to get that across. Sometimes it doesn't work. I thought Donald Trump on Saturday Night Live was ridiculous and didn't help him and probably hurt him, actually, because he is more entertaining 
than Saturday Night Live is. So he had to dial down to be part of their show, which is not what he ought to be doing. So that's my David. Rick, uh, Hello, David. Uh, as you've been so kind to mention, you and I both span an awful lot of television news <coughs> history. And when I first came in and you were already there, uh, there were three major networks, a country of three, uh, what, 200 million people. And between the three of us on the evening news, we had 64 million of them um, every night. Like a third of the country Even was watching more. one of three shows. All of that's changed now, and we've gone through various different... So my question is this, were we better served then than we are now? Are we well served now by television news? And where do you think television news is headed? Well, what's lacking in television news right now, or what's, la you know, first of all, I mean, it's even more profound uh, than David lets on. I mean, yes, there were three networks. When I actually started and I was working as one of Walter Cronkite's producers, we had by ourselves a 35 share, and it wasn't a dramatic lead, it was just a lead, but 35 share. Nobody, not even, I mean, the Super Bowl gets, you know, shares like that, but nobody else does. And that was our nightly share, and, you know, we were beating Huntley Brinkley, and we didn't watch ABC at that time. And um, there are, I don't know how many news sites, and I watch, you know, like four or five of them, and, and that's not counting the networks, which I... I watch if I have a moment, but I don't tend to watch them because they're usually dated by the time I would see their stuff. Um, we were You were well served by them in the past because it was the only way. When Walter said that's the way it is, you didn't know that's the way it was until he told you. So that is the way it is. You're right, Walter. Now there are so many places, but the real problem is that news is not well curated. And you don't know... And I can't tell you, um, where do you go for honest, broad, deep, sensible news? Who's curating? Who's doing a great job of curating? I will tell you, the three morning shows that we talked about, three network morning shows, have between them somewhere around, I don't know, 12 million, 13 million people maybe watching, five, four, and three, or five, five and three, whatever, 12 to 14 million. All Things Considered has 22 million people listening to it. And they're not listening to it because it's got snappy music and they tell funny jokes. They're listening to it because it's got deep dive stories and they're substantive and you feel that when you listen to it, you get value added, you get what's, you know, you get important information and it's useful to you, and it's 22 million people, more than almost twice what the television morning newses get. And by the way, it's always been that kind of ratio between All Things Considered and the morning shows. So I think that people are looking for well-curated, serious, important news, and um, <clears throat> I think it's a problem where you find it. Um, I think you're, there, everything that you need is out there. So in that way, bless you, in that way you're being served, but because you're not being helped about, well, but where do I find that and that and that? And you really have to be adept at, well, I know that they do a good job in the Middle East and this place does a good job domestically, and I'll get good economic news. You know, you really have to search around. You have to become so expert that I guess they don't do an adequate job. When somebody comes up with a, a proper curation of how that works, and they, and they forget this urge to throw that, you know, entertaining or whimsical or tabloid or disgusting or pointless stuff into their show because people like to watch that. When they have a higher opinion of the audience, uh, and so they're really, you know, we're really left with uh, the results of what is a, you know, skilled curation. I mean, the people who work at the networks are more than skilled and able to bring you what you need to, to, to know, but there is a real tendency in most cases not to completely pay off on that. So I 
skirted your answer a bit, but I just don't think it's easy, and I don't think um, I think everything you need is out there. God knows, you know, you can find between YouTube and Google, and you can learn something about everything. Uh, but it's hard to know when you ha- when you can believe it. Yeah. Please. No, please, you're in. Thanks. Steve Kaminas from Rhode Island, retired Hi. local television news director in several markets. I want to talk about the debates from the standpoint of how I think they're failing us terribly, even though the Fox debate was by far the best, as you said. We need a debate in which one or, on each side, at least, that doesn't have an audience because it's a distraction. It will be less entertaining and therefore the, the networks will be less enticed. And you might argue, but the point is to get the information to people and the fewer people will get it. I don't think it's the case because as you know better than I, everything that is said by the politician hits the wires, hits the internet, etc. So if you had a debate where the candidates were uh, asked questions by competent reporters from the networks or papers, and they were allowed to follow up. If the format allowed the reporter to follow up for several minutes, then we're more likely to understand the repercussions of the statement or policy that the candidate is making. We don't know it now because, as you said earlier, a lot goes unchecked. People like Carly Fiorina can throw out a million things and no one's asking her to support that or what the implication is of that. And not because the reporters are incompetent, they're clearly very competent. But the same is true of any policy statement, even if it's a legitimate one by the candidate. We have no putting them, no clarification. It's not a matter of gotcha, it's a matter of, but doesn't that mean that X is gonna happen? And it would be helpful if we could have at least one of those debates in the primaries on either side. And it doesn't have to get 24 million people watching. All right. Um, first, uh, there's a problem in, the, in your premise, and I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, first, I would say I thought Anderson Cooper also did a really good job yeah. on, on that debate. And, um, but having had to negotiate with the candidates and their campaigns, they don't want a format, and they won't show up. They won't agree to come to a debate where you sit there and say, well, my anchorman can ask you a question, and if we don't like the answer or you're not answering the question, we can follow up. They won't accept that. They won't do it. It'll, it's a non-starter with them. They don't view the debates with the same high um, in this, with the same esteem that you do. They look at the debates, it's a chance to get out there and if I can get a couple of shots in and I can get a couple of things done and I can get some traction, you know, maybe I'll make it, you know, and I'll get a bump in the polls and who knows what will happen to me and, and all this. That's what they look at. And, and they do everything in their power to keep the debate like these debates have been. Now, I think what journalists can do is what Fox did and what CNN did with Anderson, which is you don't have to keep saying, well, you know, she said this about you, and what do you want to say back to her? You don't have to go that way. You can go with issues. I thought Anderson and Fox both asked tough questions, very tough questions. If you put the questions together and don't waste time with the answers, they're a hell of a set of questions. Now, the other thing, though, about asking questions at debates, um, and you all know this going in, just because you ask a question doesn't mean a candidate's going to answer it. You can ask me, is this a wood table or a formica table? And I could say, let me tell you how Harvard is constructed. It was, and whoa, you know, and you just, you can answer whatever you want, and they do. No matter what you ask them, they will answer something different. And sometimes they don't do it artfully. Uh, Sarah Palin, 
in her vice presidential debate, made it very clear that she didn't care what questions uh, she was being asked by, uh, um, what's her name, from the news hour? Um, Gwen Eiffel. And what Gwen Eiffel should have said was, you know, you agreed to these rules, and I know that you don't want to answer these questions, I guess, but you said you were going to, but you do what you feel is morally right. That's what she should have said to her, as opposed to, well, go ahead. And, and no matter what Gwen Eiffel asked, Sarah Palin answered what she wanted to. She talked about what she wanted to. She talked about being change agents and radicals and, you know, liberal biases and horrible media and, you know. Bob Schieffer hosted a debate and did it brilliantly and kept it in line and, and I, you know, and you got a good Q&A back and forth, but he was not able to jump and when somebody didn't answer his question precisely or somebody else's question, even he couldn't you know, do that. He found other ways to make up for that because he's Bob Schieffer. Um, so, but Bob Schieffer can't host every debate. I don't think networks would be happy with that. He would be happy with that, but and he would be great at it. But um, you know, you pass this around, and and some people are 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 you know competent to do it, and others aren't. But you won't get the candidates to go along with what you're asking. You won't. Uh, I think that's where the network. Because we uh, we're so running out of time. On. So if, if, sure. is there another? Yeah, please, Marie. Hi, I'm Marie Sons. I'm a Sharnstein fellow here. In your opinion, how has the coverage of the world changed on American television, and uh, particularly with the lack or absence of uh, fewer and fewer foreign correspondents abroad? Yeah, it's um, it's diminished. The uh, first of all, it's too quick. Um, it's important to get on the air fast. I'm with you, but. We used to have it where, you know, you covered, you got somewhere, and maybe it was new to you, the country, or maybe the incident was new to you, and you had a day to get your thoughts together while the film got to New York and all the rest of that. So there was a lag. Now you land somewhere, and you're on the air. And you have to start, you know, doing whatever it is that you do, and your reporting tends to get shallow. And um, you get more easily manipulated by the people who are available to you, which are usually press aides and the rest. Um, we are also much more reliant, and this always troubled me, because I came from a situation where we didn't want to hire freelancers for certain kinds of stories, because if you weren't my, if you weren't an ABC correspondent, you know, David Enser, I would trust to the end of the world, but. It, but he was an ABC News correspondent, and I knew what his, I knew the ethics that he had, and I knew his work, and I knew I could trust him, because we would kill him if he didn't know. <laughs> but, but you get, you know, when you get these freelancers who end up, you know, they, they pop up and they say, I just got this great video in Tanzania, or I got this terrific video of ISIS, uh, which everybody's desperate for, right? in Syria, can I, and you don't, you know, you do the best you can to make sure that you can verify and and that you can look at the video and and it's, you can tell when, I think, when something is staged or not. You can tell more by the outs than the ins because you can see, you know, if people were doing things for the camera or not for the camera. but. What's happened with foreign correspondence now and foreign reporting is, or international reporting, is that they're not your people, they're not under your control, you have fewer of them out there, the depth isn't there, and there's not a commitment, unfortunately. I say this sadly, this does not hold true for the CBS Morning News, but there, or 60 Minutes, but it does not, but it holds true for everybody else. They just don't think Americans give a damn about international news. Now, they care about ISIS, they care about that, but does it really have to rise to that level? There's lots of other stories that impact on ISIS. There's stories happening in Turkey and Pakistan right now that are going to have a dramatic impact on ISIS. And um, 
they just don't think that we care about it, so they don't cover it. So it's sad. So, Rick, um, <clears throat> I'm going to exercise my question at this point. So Remember, I'm, we're having dinner tonight. We are. Pay right. back so, uh, <laughs> so I've been in your house yes. and uh, seen that wonderful wall with, I think, maybe four dozen Emmys. And 47. 47. <laughs> <laughs> I was close. I was only off by one. Four dozen, right? The truth is that a third of them are in boxes. So, but it, but if I were to break case. into your house, I yes. actually there's something else that I would go for. The Aladdin statue. No, it's uh, <laughs> it's a baseball with a certain signature on it, and I'm kind of wondering. Well, it depends which baseball. I mean, I have a Fidel Castro baseball. That's the one. <laughs> but so, I also have a Nelson Mandela baseball. But I know. I, but I want to ask about the Fidel. Okay. Uh, you spent a considerable amount of time with Fidel. And yes. I, uh, I'm just curious how, what your thought was about kind of the uh, kind of the near or the beginnings of some kind of normalization. Was that a surprise to you? No, because uh, we, ormo we almost normalized during the Clinton administration, except they had the incident where the right. Castro, where Castro shot down that small plane. Um, God, there's a great story that goes with that, but sorry because <laughs> this is all on the record. Um, and they were, I think, I know that they were on the verge of doing something with it until that moment. And then, uh, of course, Congress passed uh, a bill that put an end to normalizing. Um, every Secretary of State, I think I'm accurate in this, I think every Secretary of State has said that the most uh, onerous thing we've ever done is to continue this embargo and this lack of relations with Cuba. I mean, we could have relations at one point with Syria, with Libya, with all kinds of countries, but we couldn't have relations with Cuba. Now, I understand that there are a number of Americans and Cuban Americans, and and there's a great deal of feeling about Fidel and what he's done and all the rest, but when you sit in other countries and, and you talk to people and they talk about all the bombs that Obama has sold to other countries to drop on our heads, you can under, you know, you start to get the feeling that you can really paint almost anyone into a corner, um, and I'm not trying to compare Castro to Obama, believe me, but I, there's a depth of feeling about Castro that, that comes into play here, but what's more important, I think, are the two peoples and the idea that they're 90 miles away and we just have to be able to, after all these years, 50, you know, 59 to, to now, so what is that, 41 and 15, is 56 years of a failed foreign policy because the embargo, all that's done is harm Cuban people, it hasn't done anything to destabilize the government ever. And we just need to move beyond it. We, we need to press. So I'm very happy. And I know that we were on the verge of doing it 10 years ago, and it got sidetracked. And part of the reason it got sidetracked was American politics, because nobody wanted to do anything that was going to skew what they thought was going to happen to the Florida vote. Right, because Cuban Americans living in Florida were going to pay, were going to make whatever president made this deal, was they were going to make that a horrible price that 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 president was going to have to pay because we were never going to support him again. But now what's going on is um, there are people who live in Cuba, who I'm sorry, people who live in Florida who are not. You know, who, they're still anti-Castro Cubans, but there are also a great number of people who are, they don't want this Cuban immigration in the way it's been done, where people just show up on the, on the shore, and as soon as they touch the land, we have to accept them. And, you know, it, it, you know there's social issues that it, that it involves. And there isn't quite this wall of, of criticism that there once was in Florida about this. So Florida has tended, as Florida receded as, an, as a reason not to go along with normalization, um, I think it set the stage for that, for that to happen. I think 
you know, Fidel is not running the country anymore. I understand his brother is. But I believe that when normalization really takes place, I think both Castros will move on of their own choice. And the Cubans will tell you it needs to be of their own choice. It's not up to you to tell us who our leader ought to be. You know, the three-quarters of Cuba knows no other leader than Fidel Castro. And um, they have the highest literacy rate. They have a tremendous medical system hampered by its lack of ability to get drugs, uh, our embargo. Um, there's a lot that Cuba has to offer. And I think that when we normalize, they'll both be gone. And then that would have, t that would have taken, you know, and we could have probably accomplished that 10 years ago. I think part of this was, you're not going to tell us what to do, and I'm not stepping down to satisfy you. You know, so Fidel stayed on and Raul stays on, and, you know, it's kind of like we'll do it on our terms, our time. And so I think we'll have normal, normal relations soon. Right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.